the Scottish nun was so excited to be at the consistory where the Pope elevated her Scottish bishop to become a cardinal. In the Roman Catholic world, it's like one of the greatest possible honors. In fact, in terms of the Scottish world, it only happened three times. And the Scottish nun was so happy to be there, and she was waving her little St. Andrew's flag. Not a Union Jack. No, she's Scottish, nationalist. Waving a little Scottish flag. She was from Ayr, Scotland. Ayr is the home of Robert Burns, the great bard of Scotland. Don't get me started there. One of my favorite poets. So naturally, she was full of pride at the moment. And to see one of her bishops be elevated to become a cardinal. And that's the pool from which they choose the future pope. And of course, the Boston Globe was there. Boston, one of the great Roman Catholic cities in America. They had to be there. And this Boston Globe reporter saw this little Scottish nun with her full habit on, waving her little Scottish flag. And he said, we got to interview her. And so he taught, she taught, shared how excited she was that her bishop had elevated to this amazing position as cardinal. But then he asked a very interesting question. He said, wow, what, what do you feel about the future of Christianity? It was then that her bright face was darkened. And I will tell you exactly what she said, because I've never forgotten the exact words she said to the reporter. When her face darkened, she said these words. The churches are getting emptier and emptier, and they're just not any young people anymore. The churches are getting emptier and emptier, and there just aren't any young people anymore. Now, from the point of view of that Scottish nun sitting in Scotland, who, from all that she possibly could know, that Western Europe was the heartland of Christianity. And from her point of view, as she looked around, if, if it was this bad in Scotland, it must really be bad everywhere else. Because she was in the reported heartland of the faith. The churches are just emptier and emptier, and there just aren't any young people anymore. Surely she experienced and expressed what many of us could too about what we now are calling the post-Christian West. But what she may not have fully understood clearly was not so much the story of, in the, in the, the sad, ravaging story of the post-Christian West, but the other story of post-Western Christianity. Because the very world that she actually inhabited was a world that is teeming with new Christian communities all over the world. The all saints of the world, Chinese and Latino and African and Indian Christians in the scats. Their church has never been more diverse or more global, more youthful than it is today. And so there's a vision of the church. In fact, in our own day, Matthew 24, 14, being fulfilled in our very eyes when Christ says, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end shall come. This is the world that we inhabit. 
And we turn to our text today in Isaiah 49. We are now in this series on, on servanthood, and we, I told you we'd spend the first two parts of the series, this is the second, on establishing the fact that before we can ever even talk about all the ways we can be servants in the world to, uh, before the Lord and before the hurting world, we must first understand that there's only one servant in the world. It's Jesus Christ. He is the suffering servant in the world. And Isaiah, in his grand vision, his wonderful servant songs, we'll look at all of them eventually, but we'll, the second one today from Isaiah 49, 1-7. Now in this passage, uh, the, the servant speaks in the opening of this chapter. And the servant addresses the nations of the world, right? Listen to me, it's a command for him. Listen to me, you islands, Hear this, you distant nations. So here we is, there's a summoning of all the nations of the world to listen because the, the servant is attentive and the servant is obeying the, the call of Yahweh. Now, I love that Isaiah's interaction with this, that it, out of his own life, and of course, the, the servant himself reflected in Israel in verse 4. Because many of you in this room are future pastors future leaders of the church and counselors and teachers. And there'll be many moments, and we have trustees here, many of whom had a lot of years of experience in ministry, and they will say, yeah, or you experience Isaiah 49.4. Because in the text, he says, Lord, I have labored in vain. Lord, there's reek, emptiness. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity, the word there is hevel. It's the same word in Ecclesiastes, you know, uh, vapor, emptiness. You ever felt like that? If not, you will. Where you feel like, you know, I'm just banging away. And I look around and the church is getting emptier and emptier. And there just aren't any young people anymore. That's, that is a lot of ministry. You feel like that. God invites us into that, actually of his own rejection. And Isaiah felt that. He expressed that on behalf of the people. And we have this amazing, it's shocking, because if you ask Isaiah, and you were to say, you know, Isaiah, if you could, and maybe all of us could just like write down on a piece of paper, like, what is your greatest hope for the church? And you might say, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm not this pastor, right? you know, oh, if we could just, Lord, if you could just turn this domination around. Oh, Lord, if you just revive this beleaguered group that's facing to find a whole new ways of forgetting the gospel every day, could you just bring remembrance back? You know, you, we all have these kind of things we could write down on a piece of paper. And Isaiah would have said, Lord, if you just bring back those of Israel that are scattered and restore Jacob to yourself, that would be great. And think about the world he's living in. He's living in the world where the people of God are decimated. We, we, all, we all get that. We can see that around the world and run our own lives, many of our own denominations. His, Isaiah's greatest hope would restore the tribes of Jacob, bring back those of Israel I've kept. And what does the Lord say? What does Yahweh say to the servant? Now, Mara is our best reader, one of our best readers. Mara should be the one to read this, but I'll read it again. But, you know, when you read this, you can't read it like, it's too small a thing. No, no, no. 
It is too small. It's too small a thing for you through my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. See, this is what we get. We get caught in these eddies. You know, we get caught in these kind of small ideas of what God is doing. And we, we, we think small. And here is Yahweh saying, it's too small. I will also make you a light for the nations that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is the great, I mean, Isaiah is not inventing some new like commission. This is the original commission from Genesis 12, 3, right? Where he said, Abram, on day one, with a man, alone, a man in exile, with a barren wife. And God says, in your seed, all nations will be blessed. That's the beginning of this great trajectory that runs through Isaiah and Psalm 87, all the way to Revelation 7, 9. This is the great story. And the, the little Roman Catholic nun couldn't quite see it. Because like, uh, like her, we are like her, we get caught in these eddies of despair that often happen. Life of the church is too small a thing for you to be my servant, restore the tribes of Jacob, bring back those of Israel I've kept. I'll also make you a light to the nations to bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And the text actually says, as Mar brought out and I wish you read it, it is not actually bring. It's not that the servant brings this message. He is the message. You are, you are, you are the servant. You are the ones, I, you are the light for the nations that you may be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is why Paul so insightfully in kind of that uh, midrashic moment of Galatians, you know, there's, there's John 3.16 and there's the uh, epistle uh, 3.16, Galatians 3.16, where Paul captures the gospel in that moment, that great moment where he says, when he said in Genesis 12.3, in your seed, all nations will be blessed. He wasn't, he didn't say seeds, meaning all the descendants, but he said seed. There is one. Jesus Christ is the way in which this blessing comes to the nations. And I love the fact, especially today in this world, of how this blessing unfolds. Because you think in light of all of the rebellion of the nations that's highlighted in Isaiah in this text, what you don't get from the servant is this kind of, a, you know, the Rehoboam solution, right? My little finger is thicker than my father's waist, right? Um, the nations are in rebellion. They're pushing back against God and the divine revelation. I can push back even harder. This is the world we live in, right? It's all about power dynamics, right? The whole, uh, everything is based on, you know, uh, justice today is power management, and we have something here, a power of humility, of love, of restoration, of promise. This is scandalizingly powerful. Nations coming to the light. You know, Psalm 87, we, had, we read, it lists all of the great enemies of Israel. I mean, it's amazing, this, this, this little seven verses psalm. I mean, it's almost, like, when you first read it, it's almost like a children's song. It's, 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 it's uh, how do you say it? It's like, uh, it's, subver it's subversively simple. Because in this little seven verse psalm, it lists all of the mortal enemies of Israel. And today we're taught to have all kinds of enemies. 
Egypt, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush. There they are, all there. And what does it say? We're going to say this one and that one are born in her. Not even, not even just inclusion language, not even grafted in language. They're native born. They're one of us. It is radically and powerful inclusive. The power of the gospel, the suffering servant in the world. And so, when Isaiah quotes this, even Jesus, when he, uh, on the ascension, you must remember Acts 1.8, you know, he'd given all these commissions, but one last time for the ascension, he quotes the end of Isaiah 49.6. My witness, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The, the Greek in that phrase is exactly the same as the Septuagint, Isaiah 49.6. Through my salvation, the ends of the earth. But see, there it is, Jesus is, and this is where All Saints Day comes in. Because Jesus does not, the, the suffering servant of God, who embodies the blessing of the nations, he, at his ascension, he calls us to be a part of this. We are the instrument through which he brings blessing to the nations. We follow, we are in him, we are in Christ, out to the ends of the earth. And when Paul, again, radically shocking, we saw last time how Matthew quotes the first servant song, Positive to Christ and Issues of Justice. Here, Paul quotes a second servant song in Acts 13, 47. And he says to this, he's, by the way, the context of this is why are they leaving the synagogue and going out and preaching out to the open Gentiles? And so Paul says, this is the why we're preaching to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles. I bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Did I read over too fast what he actually said? What he didn't say? What you expect Paul to say? He was a good, you know, Gamaliel-trained Jew. He, you think he would have said, for this is what the Lord commanded him, the suffering servant. But he doesn't say that. Look at the text. It says, this is what the Lord commanded us. I'll make you a light to the nations a light to the Gentiles. You see, Paul understood that we are part of this. This is the whole power of All Saints Day. We are in this train that starts with Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, goes all the way through Isaiah 49, 6, Psalm 87, all the way through to the Great Commissions, and eventually Revelation 7, 9. This is, this is the great great ark and it's so easy to get lost in Isaiah 49.4 get lost in all of that and the church are emptier and emptier and there are no young people anymore all of that and we can lose sight of what God is doing in the world and this is exactly what happened the gospel goes forth right in the New Testament itself book of Acts and I love the fact that these saints let's celebrate the saints here a bit that these saints in Acts, Acts 11.20, we do not know their names. We're, we're simply told that some unnamed disciples, some disciples from Cyprus and Cyrene, began to preach to Greeks also, telling them the good news of the Lord Jesus. And that begins the church of Antioch. This is a Gentile church. And by the second century, it's the largest church in the world. Not in the Jerusalem, you know, Jewish heartlands, but in the Gentile land. 
God was unfolding his story. And as you know, this, you know, Paul, this is Antioch is the, the base of Paul's missionary journeys. And, and we call them missionary journeys, and sometimes we think wrongly these are like evangelistic crusades, but they're not. They're church planting endeavors. Paul is going all over planting, self-propagating, self-producing uh, churches all over the Mediterranean basin. And of course, eventually by the fourth century, they, 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 the church turns around the entire empire with all the glories and challenges of that. And it, it becomes the official religion of the empire. What a dramatic thing happened. And eventually, of course, when the empire fell, and in those days, you can imagine what it was like. I mean, every, on every horizon, there's another city burning. It was 9-11 every day with the so-called barbarian invasions and the Goths, the Visigoths, and all of that. And, the, and, the, and what since the Christians realized early on, and this is, of course, Augustine, city of God, the barbarians are our, that we have to reach them for the gospel. And they became very, very good Christians. And so the gospel continues to spread. And even with the gloss of the empire, the empire moved to Constantinople, it spreads to the Eastern world. It's quite remarkable that here you have the Celtic saints like Aden and Columbia, Columba and St. Patrick bring gospel to the Western world. At the same time, you have the gospel going on the Silk Route, and about the same time the gospel was preached in England, what's now England, it was being preached in the imperial courts of China. That's story of missionaries. When Islam emerged, and the former Christian uh, heartlands fell, and even the, so the Middle East and the so-called Holy Land fell to Islam, a lot of gospel can't be put out. Boniface preached the gospel in the heart of Germany. You had Cyril and Methodius translating the gospel into the Slavic tongue. Vladimir braving the mighty steps of Russia, bringing the gospel there. Raymond Law in the midst of the Crusades, one of our darkest chapters, and we should remember that with sorrow, but we should also remember Raymond Law in the middle of the Crusades, known as the apostle of love in an age of hate, brings the gospel to North Africa and tells the Muslims they're to be lo they're loved by Christ. Many Muslims came to Christ, and he eventually was martyred there for the sake of the gospel. After the gospel was recovered and remembered through the Reformation, remembered the power of the gospel, the authority of Scripture, you had this explosion of witness all over the world, from the you know, Moravians out of the, the estate of Count von Zinzendorf, it streamed all over the world, and then because of the rustling revivals and the great evangelical awakening, you had all of these societies that sent out men and women like William Carey and Adnarm Judson and Hudson Taylor and C.T. Studd and Amy Carmichael and Lottie Moon and Gladys Elward and E. Stanley Jones and many others too numerous to count who were faithful. This is the great All Saints train. It's marched through the world, being faithful to the gospel. When the missionaries went to Africa, the average lifespan was two years because of malaria. But they called it the missionary graveyard. But you know what? The gospel was planted in Africa. And today, some of the great churches of the world are located in sub-Saharan Africa. And we thank God for the Kenyans and Nigerians and Ghanaians and others that are here in our midst and all over the world, God has doing a great thing in the African church. 
When the missionaries first came to China, they were called foreign devils. But the point is, the gospel took root in China. And look at today, the tens of millions of Chinese Christians our poor Scottish nun didn't seem to know about, but in fact are encircling the world today as witness to many in our midst here today as well. Thank God for the tens of millions of Chinese Christians. All of this because the gospel is not Eastern or Western. It is rooted in the heart of God. And it's spread all over the world from church plants in remote islands of the Pacific to small little gatherings in the mountains of Nepal. This is God's story through God's saints. From the Jesuit witness in the imperial courts of China to the relentless travels of David Livingston in the heart of Africa, this is God's story through God's saints. From the work of Wycliffe Bible translators, turning the Bible into new tongues, all the way to our own graduates working in some of the great Muslim cities of the world, like Istanbul and Cairo and Damascus and Jarkata. This is God's story through God's saints. Think about the Hispanic leaders being taught by Asbarians in North America. There are 62 million Hispanics in North America. And now many of those leaders, Christian leaders, are being trained to bring the gospel to over 60 million Hispanics. They're all the way to fiery preaching on the streets of Rio and Sao Paulo in Latin America. This is God's story through God's saints. Church planters facing the heat of India's Ganges plains, all the way to these amazing gospel workers facing the bitter winds of Mongolia. You see, this is God's story through God's saints. Think about the last middle of the 20th century, evangelists like Billy Graham, Luis Palau, preaching the gospel, or some young Russian woman kneeling at her bedside that you never heard of in some nondescript gray apartment complex in somewhere in Moscow, who kneels by her bed and invites Jesus into her heart. You see, this is God's story through God's saints. But the whole chain that begins in Genesis 12, 3 runs down through history. All these saints, it comes to you. You have a chapter to write. We have to be faithful in our day. We can't, the, only, the best way to celebrate the saints of old is to be a saint today. And it's much better, and I want to tell the Scottish nun this, Lord, turn to, she's probably with the Lord now. Well, she didn't need to be told now. She's with the Lord. <laughs> she knows. But Lord, tell the Scottish nun there she's still in Scotland in the air. You know, it's much better to be a small part of something big than a big part of something small. And I don't, I don't care how discouraging you may find yourself at times. You are part of something great. That's the promise of Isaiah 49.6. Our own daughter occasionally calls us on the phone and will say to us, she's in 11th year in Tanzania, Monialagua. And she said to us, my life is a total waste. Because I have no fruit. 
nothing to show. But when she gets before the Lord, the Lord reminds her and you and me, no, you're part of something great. Even the privilege, we have church plants from Asburians in tattoo parlors, in Home Depot break rooms, in, in, in pubs and everything imaginable. And there are so many times where your own generation will say no. They'll refuse to believe the gospel. It's still, you're still bearing the light. You're still bearing the light. You're being faithful. God doesn't actually care if your church has five people or 5,000. What he cares is that you're faithful. And he will do all the other things. But sometimes he calls us into his pain, into his own rejection. It's hard. Isaiah understood that. And yet we live for this day, which will be the day that we, we will be there. Think about it. When John's vision, this is where all saints is headed. Paul, John says, I looked and behold before me a multitude that no one could count. Hallelujah! No one could count from every nation, every tribe, every tongue before the throne for the Lamb. I'm going to live for that day. I want you to live for that day. Because that's the story of all saints. October 16, 1555, the Oxford martyrs were burned to death this month, 1555. Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, Thomas Cranmer. They were one of just over 300 killed, burned to death in two years under Mary. And as they were tied to the stake, think about it. They were tied to the stake and they, they lit the fire that would burn them to death. And Ridley turns, or Latimer actually turned to Ridley and said, they're lighting a fire today, but there's another fire being lit that cannot be put out. Yes, you might get caught in an eddy. We all do. We look around and say, like that Scottish nun, you might even have your little flag waving, your habit on. Say, Lord, it's so discouraging. The church is getting emptier and emptier. And there aren't any young people anymore. We will get that. We get those feelings at times. But never forget that the God story is about God saying, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribe of Jacob. Bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light to the nations, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. That is the great narrative. Never lose sight of it. Hold on to it and believe in it, and God will bring us to that great day. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. That, Lord, you have put something into motion that no one can stop. You have said, a door I open, no one can close. Lord, we thank you that the door of the gospel has been opened and it cannot be shut by the powers of hell itself. And, Lord, though we get discouraged, though we get caught in these despair moments, in our church's dominations. We thank you, Lord, that the gospel is on the march around the world.
And you're doing things that will silence everyone who looks up and sees your work. So Lord, we pray that you would always remind us of your mercy and grace for us as we participate in your work in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.